When I was a sophomore in college, I lived in a dorm with a particularly close-knit group of students. One of our favorite activities that year was driving to a downtown cafe called Coffee Underground for a late-night snack or a needed infusion of caffeine. But on October 30th, uh, 1997, on one of many short drives downtown to that cafe, a car filled with five of my friends was hit by another car who ran a red light. Four of the five freshmen escaped unscathed with minor abrasions, as did uh, the other driver. But my friend Greg was thrown through the front windshield and suffered massive trauma. The accident left him legally blind and partially deaf. Through personal determination and Herculean support from his parents, Greg graduated from Furman University in May 2003. Uh, to accept his diploma, he rose from his wheelchair and took a few steps for the first time in public since his accident five years earlier. Now, Greg's story is inspiring in many ways, and his progress is truly remarkable. But I harbor no illusions that his life since the accident has ever been easy. The wreck happened the day before Halloween, on the edge of the holiday season. By Thanksgiving, he had still not emerged from his coma. Now, we were grateful that Greg was alive, but in the coming years, he would have 20 surgical procedures and have to relearn even the most basic physical actions from swallowing to speaking. When his accident first happened, the entire college and really the surrounding community were shaken, and there was a heartfelt outpouring of emotion and support. But as time passed, other responsibilities began to demand people's attention. Life for most people returned to normal. But returning to life as normal before the accident was, of course, impossible for Greg and for his family. And those of us who had lived with him on the same hall continued to experience a fairly relentless sadness. Every time we passed his dorm room, we were reminded of him and that he remained in the hospital instead of both where where both he and we wanted him to be. Back to class, back to his room, back to uh, normal, regular college life, such as we understand that. As the Christmas holidays approached that year, I remember sitting with a group of friends from that hall in a dark alcove of the colleges, on the edge of the college's dining hall. Greg had awoken from his coma at this point, uh, but we had just received another email update about just how difficult his path forward was going to be. I remember us collectively looking out at the rest of that brightly lit dining hall, which was festively decorated for the holidays. Everyone seemed so animated, so happy, so carefree, just glad that exams were almost over and that they'd be headed home for the holidays. Their loud, jovial conversations were such a stark contrast to our more somber mood. Holiday music was playing in the background, but none of us felt particularly merry and bright. The whole scene was so different from the immediate aftermath of Greg's accident when a pallor had spread over the whole school. Now, of course, I know that we don't really know what was going, inside, going on inside the heads and hearts of all those uh, students. Many of them were likely dealing with serious problems of their own that were hidden to many of the rest of us. But that evening in particular, it seemed like everyone had moved on in their lives except us. 
And I have no doubt that in the months and years that follow, Greg and his parents likely experienced similar emotions. Certainly all of us on that hall did move on with our lives, which have included, of course, our respective struggles, even as Greg and his parents continue to persevere each day, living into the new normal that is their permanently changed lives. Now, that holiday season of 1997, I had much to be grateful for that year. Friends, family, meaningful work. But there was also an accompanying sense of sadness that my friends and I lived with, with the loss of Greg's presence from our daily lives. And as we were regularly reminded of how much Greg's life had changed in an instant and how vulnerable all of us are to that sort of mortal mortality. Now, I'd also known loss prior to this event. My own family's celebrations of the holidays had been irrevocably changed when my father died of esophageal cancer in 1994. When our emotions are drastically out of joint with the rest of society, it's not always clear how we should behave or act. As it was for me in 1997, this disjointedness can be particularly difficult for many people during the holidays. When we're surrounded by societal expectations and pressure, carols proclaim joy to the world and that it's the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. But what if we just don't feel like it's the happiest season of all? (laughs) Over the years, I've heard stories from many people that despite all the parts of the holidays that they enjoy, this season remains a painful reminder of loved ones who are no longer present to celebrate the holidays, holidays, whether from death, Death, divorce, estrangement, illness, distance, or just some change in our relationship, either to ourselves or to a loved one. The weeks and months that for some people legitimately are the most wonderful time of the year, and if that's the case, that's great, that's, that's wonderful. But for others, this same time is a bittersweet period, tinged with grief, anger, resentment, depression, isolation, or some related mix of emotions. In recent years, increasing numbers of people have felt comfortable sharing their difficulties with holiday cheer. And there's been a rise in congregations offering what are known as Blue Christmas or Longest Night Services. Have any of you ever attended a Blue Christmas or a Longest Night Service? So they're just a few. So they're, just, they're really just starting to spread. They try to provide a safe space for people to name their pain and tell their story or to be present for those who need to name their pain and tell their story. One hope of these services is to give people permission to be transparent and authentic about how they experience the holidays. To echo the refrain of a blue Christmas litany written a few years ago for use in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, the hope is that we find comfort In naming these feelings, we find some peace in being together. As we often say at the beginning of our weekly sharing of joys and sorrows, the hope is that a joy shared is a joy increased, and that a sorrow shared is a sorrow diminished, if only in part. Now, I'm not sure about the exact origin of these Blue Christmas and Longest Night services. I first began hearing about them a little more than a year ago. A quick Google search turned up references to annual Blue Christmas services as far back as 2006, but they may well have been happening for many years prior to that. 
For whatever confluence of reasons, this year the increase in services seems particularly significant. There have been a number of media stories about Blue Christmas services, and I've noticed quite a few congregations here in Frederick offering them. My assumption is that these services are proliferating because they are meeting a previously unmet need of the many people who experience the winter holidays in a way that is messier and more complex than can be captured in simple catchphrases like the most wonderful time of the year. Indeed, marketing the holiday season as the most wonderful time of the year may be precisely why we desperately need Blue Christmas and longest night services. By proclaiming the holidays the most wonderful time of the year, we may be setting ourselves up to fail. How could the messiness of reality ever live up to the hype of all those perfectly choreographed holiday specials? And certainly our choices shouldn't be limited to either celebrating a Hallmark holiday or not celebrating the holidays at all. We have the freedom to find meaningful and authentic ways of marking our holidays with rituals that honor the reality of our actual life. To that end, I first planned to preach this Sunday on the theme of Blue Christmas back in the summer. But the need of many people to articulate their experience of a Blue Christmas has become even more sharply clear in recent days. No one could have predicted this timing back in July when I first outlined my preaching plan for the coming months. I'd spoken earlier about my experience of a blue Christmas creeping into my holiday season in the wake of an accident that happened to one of my friends back in 1997. That was the real impetus for this sermon. That, that accident happened almost two months before Christmas. But as all of you know, the tragic shooting in Newtown, Connecticut happened on December 14th only 11 days before Christmas. Particularly for the immediate families of those lost loved ones, the holiday season now and in the years to come will almost inevitably be a reminder of their ongoing grief and loss. And in the past few days, as I've been thinking about the theme of Blue Christmas, hearing more of the details of what happened in Newtown and preparing for our Christmas Eve candlelight service tomorrow night, I was freshly reminded that sorrow, violence, and tragedy have been woven into the Christmas story from the very beginning. Many of us who are familiar with the Christian tradition or are accustomed to hearing the Christmas story told from Luke chapter 2. We'll be hearing that reading in our own candlelight service tomorrow, in both of them actually. But there's another story about Jesus' birth in the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And it includes a frankly horrific passage of what happened when King Herod realized that the Magi had escaped Judea without revealing the location of Jesus' birth, as he had commanded them to do. That verse um, 2.16 reads, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Now, I don't want to get distracted this morning with the important questions that could and should be asked at other times about the questionable historical accuracy of of this passage. Instead, I want to point out that a horrific story about the slaughter of innocents is embedded in the biblical narrative about Jesus' birth. 
And perhaps one of the very few redeeming factors that I can think of of this terrible tale is a reminder to be honest, that we inevitably bring our full selves to the holiday season. As John Kabat-Zinn likes to say, wherever we go, there we are. All of us. All of ourselves. And the expression of our full selves includes all the messiness of our past and present. All the joy, hope, and peace, but also all the pain, sorrow, and tragedy. At the same time, it's important to remember that many of these blue Christmas services are also known as longest night services because they often happen on or around winter solstice, the longest night of the year. Here at UUCF, our pagan group gathered this past Friday evening to celebrate and honor winter solstice, also known as Yule, to commemorate the night this year with the most darkness by, with a hope for the coming of the light. That incremental shift toward longer days that will culminate six months from now in the summer solstice on the other side of the wheel of the year. And perhaps that pagan practice of choosing to celebrate the coming of the light precisely on the darkest day of the year can point us toward the hope that on the other side, even of the darkest night, dawn will come. That being said, let me be clear that I would in no way presume to tell the victims' families in Newtown or anyone else in, that is in the midst of deep suffering that I or anyone else knows the exact way forward for them. As a news story published Friday on this year's winter solstice said, Christmas is only four days away, but Newtown residents are living minute by minute, day to day, too numb to think that far ahead. When we're surrounded by the darkest night, there are important coping strategies that therapists, uh, counselors, and other professionals can provide us for helping us through our longest nights, and we're wise to avail ourselves of them. But in my personal experience of losing my father to cancer or of losing friends to tragic accidents, there's a sense in which the return of the light comes slowly, almost imperceptibly, growing incrementally, almost unnoticeably, like the returning of the longer days after Yule. I don't think that time just simply heals all wounds, but sometimes we can, over time, find ways of integrating our losses into a new sense of ourselves and of the world. But we can rarely know the way forward in advance or the way through. And the best, most empathetic guides are often support groups or individuals, their supporting presence of those who have walked similar paths before us. In the spirit, I invite you to hear a blessing for the longest night written by the artist Jan Richardson. This blessing is written in the hope that being honest and authentic about our experience of having a blue Christmas or a longest night can be part of what leads us sometimes without us knowing how or why in advance, to a different time and to a different place in our lives, to a different space in our journey through this life. I offer you this blessing. You will know the moment of its arriving. You will know the moment of its arriving by your release of the breath that you have held so long without noticing it. Thank you.
you will know the moment of its arising by a loosening of the clenching of your hands. You will know the moment of its arising, of its arriving, by the release of the clutch around your heart, by a thinning of the darkness that had drawn itself in around you. This blessing that arrives does not mean to take the night away, but it knows its hidden roads. It knows the resting spots along the path. It knows what it means to travel in the company of a friend. So when this blessing comes, take its hand. When this blessing arrives, open your hand. Take its hand. Get up. Set out on the road that you cannot see. This is the night. This is the night when you can trust that any direction you go will be walking toward the dawn. If the night is dark enough, you can trust that any direction you go will be walking toward the dawn.